If you would join me in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Today we start a new series in the book of Exodus, and we're going to begin right in the middle of the book, uh, because I believe it gives us an idea of what the entire book is about. Um, So if we could, let's read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We're thankful today that as we gather, we are, um, we are people who are deeply loved by you, uh, so much so that you would send your son to down the cross for our sins, and that you have the power to overcome sin, death, and the devil. And we know that because you raised your son from the dead. And so, Father, I pray today that we would trust in you, that we would delight in your word, that our heart's uh, affection would be on Christ today and that we might be molded and shaped and transformed by the Word of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When my family lived in Trinity, we lived in a neighborhood uh, that uh, was kind of a golfing-type community there, uh, although I didn't play golf. But anyway, uh, we were there, and um, we Sarah was uh, great with child, and uh, on our fourth and uh, so I had three littles in the home and so forth. And uh, one day I received a call that, um, you know, from her that uh, was uh, somewhat concerning. We had uh, kind of a, a backyard area. There was a gate there. And, um, and one unnamed child managed to slip through that gate And uh, took to, uh, we kind of lived up on a hill. The street in front of our house was not a busy street at all, but it went down, uh, that street went down into another street that was much busier. And uh, this child had managed to slip out, uh, run to the non-busy street, and begin sprinting uh, headlong towards the other uh, street. And uh, Sarah, I think she was probably eight or so months pregnant, uh, leaped into action as, uh, as much as an eight-month uh, pregnant lady could. And so she began rushing down the street. And eventually, uh, good news is she, she caught up, but uh, this beloved child was about halfway down the busy street and, and making good ground uh, before she finally caught up to this person and, uh, and brought them back to safety. 
this is a common story in some ways. Uh, families have situations where parents, part of being a parent is that you protect your child, and one of the ways you protect your children is you draw near to them. You sometimes will rescue them from themselves, and you bring them back uh, to safety uh, because of your love for them. In many ways, I believe that encapsulates much of what God is doing uh, to his child, Israel. Uh, he, as you'll see with the first few points, he uh, carries them on eagles' wings. That, that's what it says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So this, if you were to sum up what is Exodus all about, you can read a million different commentaries, you can read a million different uh, study Bibles and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, God gives the best commentary of what he actually was doing, what he actually did throughout the opening chapters of Exodus. And it's very simple. God carries his people on eagles' wings. God carries us on eagles' wings. Uh, God created the world in such a way that we... Uh, can you just imagine how the world must have been when God first created it? Imagine some of the happiest moments you've ever had, you've ever experienced in your entire life, and imagine every single day of every single moment being that fulfilling, that satisfying all the time, and that's all that you know. That's all there is. Uh, and that's how God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything whole, shalom, his peace flooded the earth. And Adam and Eve turned away from that. They fell into sin. And so we see a fracture in our relationship with God. We've experienced that in our relationships with one another. Uh, there is a fallout from the fall in the opening chapters of the Bible. And yet God immediately, immediately in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says, uh, the offspring of uh, the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So he gives a promise. Uh, he says that one day he's going to make this right through the offspring of uh, the woman. But what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis is how things just spiral out of control into further, further darkness, deeper, deeper wickedness. And ultimately God calls someone by the name of Abram, who we know of as Abraham. He calls him, he enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, Jacob's name is turned to Israel. So you have, this is where the 12 tribes of Israel will come from. But they go to Egypt. Joseph rises to second in command. He helps uh, the ancient world through this famine uh, and uh, God works through him. His family is brought to Egypt and so they're there in Egypt, and where Exodus begins is with a Pharaoh not remembering the family of Joseph. And that's where we turn our attention today, and we ask this question today, how does God carry us on eagles' wings? Because I think that what's true of them is an example for us. I don't think that we're to read Exodus and just say, well, that was nice for them, but what about us? I think this is an example of how God treats his beloved children, how God cares for us, and he carries all of us who are his children on eagles' wings. So how does God carry us on eagles' wings? First, God draws near. God draws near. Turn over with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. God draws near. So, as I said, Israel finds themselves in Egyptian oppression and bondage, and they are legitimately suffering. We have, uh, I think, um, we can watch uh, some nations around the world, even right now, we can see how 
uh, how people are in poverty, uh, how they are being oppressed, how they don't have a home. Uh, we can look to Afghanistan. We can look to a number of different places around the world. And even within the United States of America, we have pockets where people are hungry. They are uh, going through a time of suffering. Uh, here's the situation in the opening chapters of Exodus where God's people are really in a bind. And they are suffering. They're in the thick of it. And it says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, during that long period, so this is not a short time, this is a long period, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So they are going through a long period of suffering, a long period of oppression, and they are crying out to God for help. Uh, and notice, Pharaohs didn't have four year terms. Just let that, I mean, some of us were like, you know, anytime we have somebody in office we don't really care for, we don't like, oh, it's the longest four years of my life. They are going for year after year after year after year. And it's just the way to, there's no recourse. There's nobody for them to see about getting this done other than crying out to God. And what the opening chapters of Exodus tells us is God hears our prayers. He sees us. He hears us. And not only so, he draws near to his people. Israel cried out to God. He heard their cries and he drew near to them. And he drew near in part because of his compassion so we need to know that right off the bat, this story takes its start because of the compassionate heart of God, which he will underline over and over again throughout the course of the Old Testament. But a major emphasis, a major theme in Exodus is the presence of God, especially during tragedy, especially during suffering. This is a major Emphasis, something is emphasized throughout Exodus 1 through 19. Notice in our passage today, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, it doesn't just say, I carried you on eagle's wings. He said, I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. Those are powerful words. Those are encouraging words. Whatever you got going on around you in the world today, I want you to know that we serve a God who would draw near to us in our suffering, who's gentle and lowly at heart and, would, and delights in bringing us to himself that he might heal us and he might restore us. This is the God we worship. This is the God of our faith and the God of our fathers. When children get scared in a storm, what do they do? They go to your room, to be in your presence. Any parent knows this. It's true of probably most children. Children want to draw near to their parents, and loving parents will allow that. God, as our Heavenly Father, drew near to his people who were suffering in Egypt, and that stayed with them. It wasn't like he just came to them once. He stayed with them. Later on, he'll talk about how he was with them in a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. In the second half of Exodus, what they're about to turn to in Exodus 20 and beyond is the construction of the tabernacle whose whole purpose and point was for God's revelatory, redemptive presence to dwell right in the center of the Israelite community. 
All of the tribes are huddled around the tabernacle because everything was about the presence of God in their midst. And in fact, at the end of Exodus, the the grand finale, I think probably the climactic moment, is when God delivers them and, and leads them out of Egyptian bondage across the Red Sea. But I think the finale of Exodus is Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and following, where the glory of God fills the tabernacle and he is to dwell in their midst. He is their God and they are his people. So here's what I want you to know based upon all of that. God really does hear you. You say, no, it's been a long time. It was a long time for them. Don't you think day after day they're crying out, God, do something. I mean, show us something. Give us some sign or something. This Pharaoh, this wicked tyrant is in control. He's ruining everything. He's oppressing us. He's ruining our lives. God, don't you hear your people? How long, O Lord? This is a cry of the pages of Scripture. How long, O Lord? And yet the Bible says God heard them and he drew near to them. So I want you to know today that God hears you. You may not see it. You may not feel it. It may not seem to be that way in your life. I want you to know that God hears you, God cares, and God would draw near to you right in the midst, right in the thick of your sinfulness. God would draw near to you. Next, number two, God treasures us. God treasures his people. It says in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God treasures his people. God's people are his treasured possession. Uh, They are, as it says later on, the apple of his eye. Turn over to Deuteronomy, if you would, chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32, as many of you know, Deuteronomy is probably the best commentary on uh, the opening books of the Bible uh, because much of the story of Israel and what God did is recapped in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, it has these beautiful words. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means um, if you think about an army going to battle and they, get, uh, they, they possess certain things when they are victorious, uh, certain, that there are certain rewards. This is basically saying that Jacob, the, the, the people of Israel, is the reward, is the possession of Almighty God, and he delights in them. Verse 10, in a desert land he found him. So Jacob is symbolic for the nation of Israel here. In a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led him, no foreign god was with him. In other words, this is saying God did this. God protected Jacob. He protected his people, and God treasures them as the apple of his eye, giving us the tenderest 
a picture of God's care for Israel. Now, here's a question that we've got to ask at this point, uh, because if you read Deuteronomy 32, and then if you read uh, Exodus 19, this question might rise up. Is Israel God's treasured possession because of their obedience or because God simply set his affection on them regardless of how they act? And we like to have a lot of debate about that, but at the end of the day, the answer, I think, is yes. I think the answer is yes. If you look here at Deuteronomy 32, it talks about them being the apple of his eye, but turn over, since you're in the neighborhood, since you're in this neck of the woods, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. In other words, there's nothing impressive about you that just made God say, I've got to have that person on my team. Verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So in this one passage, you see the tension of both. Israel, what did you do to earn or to merit the treasuring nature, the treasuring love of God? Nothing. It wasn't because you were great and many. It wasn't because of anything in and of yourself. It was just simply because God set his affection on you. He said early on, he promised he would enter into a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And whereas we might be faithless, which is part of the whole story of Genesis, chapters 12 to the end, God enters into this covenant relationship. He lays out conditions. And the family of Abraham's like, okay, we'll, we'll take those as mere suggestions and we'll go live however we want to live. And yet they continue to bring the covenant into threat, into threat, into threat, and God continues to be faithful even in the midst of their faithlessness because this is a God that we serve. And so what he's saying here in Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 19 and other places in the Bible is that simply God set his affection on his people and he's remaining true to his vows, to his promise to his people. He is a faithful God. When my first child was rolled out into the hallway at the hospital, I didn't walk up to her and think, well, hope I come to love you one day. <laughs> hope you get things right and I'll, I'll care about it. No, no that's, that's not how, immediately. In fact, before that, when we're sitting in the, uh, the room and, and we, I think, I think we had a, a, a deal going where we weren't going to know the gender of the baby. Uh, but, but then it was too tempting. So we said, yeah, let, let's, let's see the picture. So we saw the picture. And I mean, that moment before, any, before she knew anything that was going on in the world, we loved. Why? Did, did, was there something about her that earned that? No, it's simply the love of a parent for a child which is why over and over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, God is presented to us as a father who loves us. But we also do need to wrestle with, we need to wrestle with the second part of this where he says, 
uh, verse, chapter 19, verse 5 of Exodus. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. If, that's a big word there. Being a treasured possession carried with it certain expectations. That's why also in the Bible, the relationship between Israel and God is presented as that of a marriage, a marriage where Israel has gone astray and wandered away from God. And as it says in many places in the Old Testament, that is cast as Israel committing adultery against God. They are to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation before God, but they have turned away from God. And so this, this is merely a situation where uh, any of us can reject God, any of us can resist God and go our own way and turn away from the love of God and reject his tenderness and his kindness towards us. But the point that we need to listen to at this point and what Exodus would draw out for us is that God not only draws near to us, he draws near to us precisely because he cares about us and he loves us. He does not look at us indifferently. He does not look at us uh, without thought or care. It says that he was concerned for his people. He loved them. He cared about them deeply, and he worked all things for their good, which brings us to number three, God protects us. How does God carry us on eagle's wings? Uh, The eagle draws near. The eagle draws near because of the apple of its eye and then protection. God protects us. So uh, the simple story I gave earlier from my own family, this in many ways encapsulates much of what Exodus is about. A father running to the rescue of a child and saving, delivering that child from bondage because the child is the apple of his eye. In the same way, God protected Israel. Protected Israel from Pharaoh. Okay, look back at Exodus 19 again, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. In other words, this is something they experienced. They experienced the protection of Almighty God. The Bible tells us there's nothing that can snatch us out of the hand of our Father. The Bible tells us there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. God is king and he is victorious. And there's nothing that this world can do to separate us from the love of our Father in heaven. He is our protector. And so not only did he draw near to Israel and go into Egypt and send his servant Moses into Egypt, he went through a series of plagues. And by the way, the whole point of series of plagues, especially if you read Revelation, is at some point he's giving the opportunity for Pharaoh and the Egyptians to wake up and see his power, to see his glory, and to repent of their ways and turn to him. And the Bible says his heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. God hardened his heart and so on. And so he rejected the offer of God to repent. He rejected all the plagues. He rejected all the signs and he turned away from God. And in so doing, God brought his people out of Egyptian bondage. They were as good as dead when they're standing and the Red Sea is in front of them and there's no way they can get across. And God works through his servant Moses to work this sign, this miracle to part the waters. They walk across The Egyptians, their enemy is defeated in the waters and they worship God on the other side. Why do they worship God? Because God of what God had done for them. Why do you sing these songs and hymns on Sunday morning? 
because of what God has done for you. You are worshiping in response to who God is and what God has done. It's not just so that you feel better about yourselves or that we can have some kind of spiritual experience here on Sunday morning. We are dealing with real history. We are dealing with a real God who loves you dearly, deeply, immeasurably, and has sacrificed his one and only son on the cross so that you might be saved. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness, and so we worship him. God protects his people. God delivers his people. God saves his people. Number four. God calls us. God calls us. Notice again in chapter 19, verse 6, that they are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As they obey the Lord, as they follow in obedience to the Lord, they serve as priests and they serve as a holy nation. What all this means is that God didn't rescue them for no reason whatsoever, just so they could inhabit the land, uh, the land that they wanted, and just live there. That's not the point. He delivered them for a reason. Why did he deliver them? So that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation before the Lord. There are two aspects of their priestly calling. One, as it says, they're called to be a holy nation. They are called to be holy. God is holy. We are called to live godly lives, and our way of life is to reflect the heart and character of the God that we serve. So you've got all of these pagan nations around the ancient world. They've got their ideas of how things ought to run, how things ought to function in a nation, okay? And so they're, they're, they're living their lives, they're doing their things, they're sacrificing children, they're sacrificing all uh, of these things, these foreign gods that they are committing all kinds of wickedness and atrocities in the ancient world. And right in the middle is supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to look into Israel and see how a people treats one another when they are functioning under the compassionate care and guidance of the true God. Nations reflect the God that they worship. Nations reflect the God that they serve. And so Israel is supposed to reflect the character and the integrity and the heart of Almighty God. And if you read later on in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 32 or 34, we'll get there. It talks about how God is compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So two aspects of their priestly calling. One is that they are called to be holy. And next moves us to the fifth point. God sends us. God sends us. Our priestly calling moves us to bring others into the fold. The eagle is supposed to leave the nest. The the eagle goes and draws near to the young as the apple of its eye, protects the young, but then sends the young out to go and do likewise, showing at the way of the eagle. And we love this part in many ways. Theoretically, we love this part. That, oh yes, God's people are to be a light unto the world. Israel was to be a light unto the nations. It sounds so beautiful. At Christmas time, you know what we're going to read? We're going to read passages that talk about how we are to be a light to the nations. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. And so much imagery that's taking place in the birth of Christ reflects this commissioning from Almighty God that we are to be a light to the nation. Sounds so beautiful. We love it. We love reading it. You know, the problem is we just don't love doing it. 
Because we're offended by the very people that we are supposed to go and reach with the gospel. And that is part of the story of Jonah. You want to know why we have in the Bible the story of Jonah? I think in in large part one of the great purposes is to show, hey, Israel, this is your calling. And you're you're acting just like Jonah did. Think about Jonah. God, God speaks to him. Now, some of us were like, Lord, speak to me. Tell me what to do, and I'll do anything you want me to do. If God came down in your bedroom and he spoke to you in an audible voice, you might say, okay, but I don't like that, right? I mean, a lot of us would be like, but, but I've got other plans that doesn't fit into my plan. The same kind of thing happened to Jonah. Jonah's living his life. He's minding his own business. He's a prophet of God, and God speaks to him and says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to proclaim a message of repentance. So opposed to that was Jonah that he loaded on a boat and he set sail away from God. He's trying to flee from what God has called him to do. If you've been in the church for any period of time, probably not only have you experienced that, you have seen that. Okay, He is running. He's hightailing it away from the Lord. And interestingly enough, God catches up with him. Okay? God catches up with him, uh, the, the story about the great whale uh, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then you get to chapter 3 and he's like, oh, okay, okay, I'll go. I'll go to Nineveh and I'll preach. And so he does. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches a message of repentance. And to his utter dismay, his message is successful. People actually respond. People, The whole nation repents before God. They turn to God in sackcloth and ashes and they repent. And you got to love chapter, chapter 4 of Jonah. It's one of the funniest moments, I think, in all the Bible, especially if you're reading it and you're a preacher. Because Jonah says, basically, I knew this would happen. This is exactly what I said would happen from the very beginning. I said I would preach this message, and they would repent. And so what does he do? He goes and he sulks under a tree that God provided for him. And Jonah closes. And what he's saying is, Israel, that's you. Just like the part of the story of the prodigal son is Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners and he welcomes them and he sits at table with them and hey, you're right now, you're acting like the older brother who is dismayed that the king would let, that the father would let the younger prodigal son sit at the table. That's true of you. And the point of these stories is don't let it be true of you. Don't be that way. You are a light to the world. You are salt and light. You are in the very way that you live your life, the words that you speak, your actions, everything about you. You are to turn people to God and for people to see the glory of God. And how many of us fall short of the glory of God? This is point number five, but I've got good news for you today. We've got two bonus points, okay? We've got two bonus points that we're going to wrap it up with this morning. And it's very simply this. First, Christ died on the cross to bring us to God. Why have this story of Exodus? How many of you, you have a Bible at home and it has um, the New Testament in it and it has one Old Testament book? What Old Testament book do people normally put in there? 
Psalms. Why the Psalms? Why not the Song of Solomon or Leviticus or something like that? Because the Psalms relate so deeply to where we are. Like when we're reading that, we're like, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what I'm going through. It's like it's just coming right out of our own heart, which is why it's healthy and good to read the Psalms. But the point is, it's not just the Psalms that applies to our situation today. Exodus is just as critical for you to understand and apply to your life today. Now, it's not like James. James, it's like every, every verse, it's like, oh, ouch, stop stepping on my toes, right? Some of you, the last several weeks as we've gone through James, you walked in here, you were limping out, right? All of us are, because that's James. Like every, it's so practical. There's no escaping it. Exodus is not like that. Exodus is a little bit different. It has some of that. you got the Ten Commandments and stuff like that. But so much of Exodus, the application of it is to draw us into the worship of the one true God for us to see this is who God is. He is the God who saves his people. You say, man, God, you don't know what I've been going through in my life. You don't know who I am. Here's what I know about Israel. I know that the moment they got out the door and they got into the wilderness, what did they do? Immediately they make a calf and they start worshiping this calf and saying, this is what let, this is the God that saved us and led us out of Egypt. And they worshiped a calf. And then they begin to grumble against God in the wilderness. God provides for them and they still complain against God. You know what I think? I think that was true of them when they were in Egyptian bondage. I don't think that's a character flaw they developed as time went on. I mean, this is after they saw God do all of these wonderful things. Uh, reasonably speaking, they might have been better off in some ways than they were. But, but this is the same group of folks. And God knew that they would do both of those things and many other things. God knew that Moses would mess up from time to time. He knew all of these things, and he knew that that's where they were when he went and got them out of Egypt, and he went and got them anyway to bring them to himself. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you to bring you to God because God desires to draw near to you, not because you're perfect, not because you're awesome, not because you're morally right or you do things right all the time, but simply because you are loved by God. God so loved the world that he sent his son to rescue us that we might not perish but have everlasting life. But what this means is, what this means is, and the final point we look at today, we are called to bring others to God by showing Jesus. We're called to bring others to God by showing Jesus. So just like God didn't rush in and rescue Israel just for them to, to do nothing and just be like, wow, that was really cool. Let's live in this land and let's worship God and, and let's keep to ourselves. That's not why God did that. God chose Abraham to bless all the families of the world. God so loved the world, he sent his son. And as the Father has sent me, Jesus says, I am sending you. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is what we are called to do. You have purpose in your life. 
And it's not about just checking a card from 8 to 5 and then going home and, and paying bills and doing all that. He has called you into a marvelous story. Reason we watch these movies and read these books and watch these stories is because we're drawn into them. Like, wow, something really cool is happening there. But I want you to know something. You're part of a much cooler story. All of those stories are pale reflections of the one true story anyway. What we call the gospel. That God sent his son into the world and he overcame the darkness in this world. The deaf could hear, the blind could see, the lame could walk. The good news was preached to the poor. The ancient world was changed by this carpenter from Nazareth. And he called people to himself. He sat at table with sinners and tax collectors with the absolute worst of the ancient world. And he loved them. And he told us stories to help us understand that this is who God is. This is the true God. Go out and tell the nations about him. So zealous was Jesus for you that he was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He absorbed the suffering and the shame that you keep carrying around. He absorbed all that on the cross out of an immeasurable display of his love. And three days later, he raised from the dead, proving that he's powerful over sin, over death, over the devil. And that anybody who trusts in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. But folks, if Moses is heading out of Egypt, you've got to put the blood of the lamb on the door of your heart to receive his grace. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. My question for you. My question for you is, have you received the love of God in Christ Jesus? Have you trusted in him as Lord and Savior? There really is no greater commitment in this life than following Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, today I invite you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you walk the aisle and tell me about it. Maybe you'll see me after the service. doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I just want you to become a follower of Jesus this morning if you haven't already. Receive his grace and his mercy. Know that God loves you. Maybe you've done that. You've not followed through in obedience with baptism. I want to encourage you to do that. Or you're looking for a church home. would love for you to partner with us in showing the world the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. But maybe you just need to come kneel at the altar and say, you know what? God, help me not to be like Israel. Help me, please, not to be like Israel and to worship other things, to commit idolatry and to complain and, and moan when you have poured out the riches of heaven on me in your son, Jesus Christ. Help me to rejoice in that. Help me to worship you, Father. Forgive me for the times I haven't. Maybe you need to come pray or grab someone else by the hand and y'all pray together. I just pray as the Spirit leads, you would respond right now. Gracious Father, I pray for us as we close this service with a time of response. Pray we take this time seriously. We know all the way back to, to Peter's sermon on Pentecost. He, he preached and people responded. So Father, I pray that this time of response would be meaningful for us, whatever that may look like. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. I'm here if you need uh, to make a decision or just need someone to pray with you. The altar's here if you just need to come kneel and pray. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, pray that you'd be faithful to him right now.